Hello, hello again. Uh, this is Pete Oslin from Left Right Middle Podcast, bringing you each week a uh, discussion around events, topics, politics, geopolitics, uh, issues that are transpiring, all from the perspective of the left, right, and the middle. I mean, my commitment to you, as I stated last week, is to come in, look at what's happening, kind of try to understand that from more than one point of view. Um, and, and oftentimes, I, as I expressed before, I'm going to have an opinion about these these items or these topics or events or whatever they may be, uh, sometimes strong, other, other times not. But I promise to be and remain committed and open to change and listening. Uh, and so over the course of this podcast, as we get more and more folks involved, we'll have a dialogue around that stuff. And I would encourage any of my uh, followers, however few or many, hopefully there may be, uh, to reach out to me at uh, Twitter, uh, you can follow me at Ozlin Comments, and uh, we can we can start a discourse there. Uh, and I'm sure there's a way to follow this on Spotify and make comments uh, related to that as well. And in any event, uh, so you know, the genesis of why this is happening, the left, right, middle perspective. I think we all know, right? There's a there's more and more a feeling of a deep-seated polarization out there uh, regarding uh, not just politics, but cultural and societal issues. And uh, having this framework, I think, hopefully will begin to expand that independent middle, which I believe I represent, you know, and, uh, and, and a person that is open to sort of considering all sides of a, of a, of the, of a topic or an issue. So uh, with that, uh, the kind of the thought process each week, we're going to take something that sort of deals with culture and society. We might take on the economy. We might take on politics. We might take on something from science or whatever. And then a, a special sort of weekly dig at the All In podcast, which uh, I listen to every week and among other podcasts. And I think that's some good content, but usually there's stuff worth taking a dig at, uh, whether I expect the content or not, uh, just because, uh, again, the middle perspective is often misrepresented, and I think we start needing to uh, start developing a uh, a counter narrative in the, in that regard. Okay, so one of the first things I came across this week I think would be really exciting to share was because uh, it re really relates to this whole mission statement that I just sort of <laughs> went on about here a minute ago is an article that appeared in the week and it's called "A Nation Moving Apart." And so this statistically, it's good to bring in rather than just sort of talk about. Uh, these things in the abstract, uh, these notions of of what's really happening. So uh, this article did a, an interesting job of sort of looking at demographics and how they've changed over the last uh, 20, 30 years. So let me just kind of throw some things out there for you to think about and think about what you want to do about that um, and how you may be an agent for change um, if, if this is indeed the case that you're feeling as well in your own area. So um, let's go into it. So how politically segregated is the U.S.? Well, Dem Democrats and Republican voters are now more geographically clustered within states than at any point since the Civil War. Nearly 80% of Americans today live in a state where a single party controls both governmentships and the legislature. And there's also a sharp partisan divide within these states. Point number one. Point number two, 81% of the country's 435 congressional districts are deemed non-competitive. Uh, for 2024, up 58% from 1999. Okay, so just kind of let's, 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 let's pull that fact out a little bit. Okay, so if you think about 80% of districts are, are deemed non-competitive, 
it's trended towards, uh, you know, possibly relocating into these different segments or parts of our country and thereby becoming more sort of informed in that viewpoint, maybe at the expense of actually listening. And again, this sort of is the, one of the main motivators of this podcast from the left, right, and the middle is that we need to find that, that middle ground oftentimes to uh, get to a point of collaboration and results. Okay. So, uh, further point number three, a 2021 Harvard study found at least 90 98% of Americans live in census tracts with some level of par partisan segregation. For about 25 million vote voters, segregation is so extreme that only one in 10 in the neighborhood encounter a supporter of the opposite party. I think we all have relatives, friends, be they be, they be that, uh, that we can't bring up politics or religion or even sensitive economic issues, how we feel about, you know, the economy and, and policies that are in place uh, without getting a visceral reaction to that sort of perspective. So what's happening is we're not having a dialogue. And when you don't have that dialogue, what do you do? You, you kind of go to your own sources and reinforce your own opinion. So one of the, the behaviors that I'd like to strongly suggest and for everybody to consider, uh, again, uh, this is from someone that you, you, has no authority to tell you what to do or how to go about living, but maybe think about, hey, if I'm a, uh avid reader of the Washington Post, maybe some some weeks I might want to read the Wall Street Journal or uh, you know, a more conservative uh, publication or vice versa. And that's going to enable you to sort of start opening your mind up to these other perspectives. Okay, so let's continue with this concept for a second, a nation moving apart. Um, the other thing uh, I think in this regard is we have to ask ourselves, is there anything we can do to reduce this polarization? So I gave you one example, right? Read content from other sources. I mean, I, I realize I'm stating the obvious here, but but we don't do that right? Or at least some segment of our population doesn't do that, right? We have those committed to the track of Fox News, those committed to the track of CNN, whatever it may be. And it's at the expense of, uh, of being fully informed, frankly. Um, so while my goal is to get everybody to listen and have a dialogue, it doesn't mean you're going to change your opinion, but at least you're better informed. Um, another thing I think we have to think about, like, how do you actually solve this po problem of polarization besides information, which Thomas Jefferson, by the way, said information is the currency of democracy. And, uh, you know, your ability to, to uh, take in information is what makes us an informed citizen, right? And so I realized that on some levels that's harder than ever, but on other levels it's easier than ever to do that. So that's just kind of one thing we can do. I think the other thing that it, it's an undercurrent, it certainly feels like it's transpiring in our society, is why be committed to one party or the other? Right. If we're just talking politics, let's say, which often is a big polarizing issue, uh, I'd like to see the independence grow in this country. Why isn't everybody an independent? Shouldn't you be an independent thinker? What does that say about you if you're if you don't have the ability to think independently? Like you're just so um, so associated with a certain tribe or a thought process, right? Even that in and of itself starts to suggest that you're closed-minded. So, um, you know, I think this kind of Movement and growth of an independent voter uh, could be a really healthy thing for our um, for our democracy and where it's at in, in its progression. Okay, so you know that was uh, I thought that was an interesting piece because again it it sort of um, 
you know, sort of helps uh, sort of support the notion of, you know, we need to be thinking about this and we need to be approaching all our topics and issues related to that. Okay. So let's keep bouncing around here a little bit. Um, and, you know, kind of seg segueing a little bit into what's happening, I think, on college campuses. And again, I don't want to break down this issue to the extent, I mean, I think most of us have some perspective on it, you know, with respect to um, protest against um, Israel and whatnot. However, I think there's a there's another aspect to this that is uh, more perhaps detrimental to our society. And it's sort of this notion that's come around and the Wall Street Journal had a really good article on this and it's called uh, Settler uh, Colonialism. And the article was written by a Claremont professor who's been there, gosh, I think a couple decades and um, shared an interesting perspective that I think is worth um, flushing out just a couple of viewpoints on. Uh, one, if you don't sort of know what the what the idea is, um, it's it's sort of part of the notion of what's happening in, uh, I think, in Gaza and the things related to uh, Israel at that time or at this time is um, rather they're they're a colonial settler, meaning that they don't they're not entitled to the land or the the freedoms that are associated with the land that they're currently on, let alone Gaza, which I think is a whole other sort of uh, issue in terms of how to manage Gaza and other Palestine states it be at west bank or whatever so um and he what he did is he kind of took this this notion and he talked about how our society is is becoming less um less supportive of what we've created here as our own infrastructure okay so for example um there's a sort of infamous letter uh, it's called a letter to america that obama had written in 2002 and when he presented this letter in his on his college campus and in his class in the just and around after nine eleven, you know, the devastating event in our own country of terrorism, uh, uh, to both the students and the faculty at that time, it, by and large, generally speaking, the the response he indicated is they were they, the students were horrified, and as were most most of the faculty. Um, and so, and then what he did as time went on, he he began to sort of, um, you know, bring this letter into some of his political science classes or whatnot. Um, and it actually took a bit of a hiatus for him. And then in 2017, after uh, I think I, he indicated, I'm looking at my notes here, a 12 year hi hiatus uh, from teaching that class. Uh, and this is obviously 2017 post nine 11, now 16 years. He said this class was, in, was filled with a totally di entirely different sort of student body. And obviously, some of those kids were, were just young kids when Bin Laden and the whole, all the events occurred around 2001. So their their association to that event was pretty far removed, right? Or they did not have a diff, uh, direct experience. And so when he began to suggest um, in part of the discourse around this that perhaps um, that event was driven by an ideologically that was uh, religious in nature, um, supported through an organization called Al Qaeda, but it was primar primarily um, the is Islamic religion. And so, uh, and he said that the response in his class was um, students walked out. They basically said he was Islam Islamophobic and um, uh, literally walked out of his class. So, why does that happen? Would that, and you asked yourself, why would, would that happen? Um, would that have happened? Two years after two thousand one, no, it's a systematic thing that takes place over time, you know, and you know, be it. Unfortunately, um, oftentimes these terrorist organizations hide behind a religion for their for their motivation, and 
and I don't want to pick on uh, Islam because this has been happening. This happened with Christianity and other uh, religious movements too. Probably less so with Buddhism, which I'm not even sure that anyone has ever died from the in the name of Buddhism. But that's a that's another uh, conversation. Maybe another topic we'll explore at some point. But I think you know anybody who has any sort of sense of history or is, knows that that can be a motivating factor. But we're we're almost discounting that now, and we're, instead we're sort of uh, students are looking, and again, I hate to generalize because, you know, I have a kid that's in college. I don't think he perceives these things this way. And, but, um, as this settler colonialism and they're sort of there and they shouldn't be there. Um, so, uh, in fact, uh, yeah, he went on to indicate at Claremont, the college where he teaches 186 faculty, faculty members signed on their letter blaming "Quote unquote Israeli settler, settler colonialism for the October seventh massacre and supporting for the boycott." Okay, so um, you know, as you hear more of this term, I mean, I think this is this is an indoctrination that is 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 dangerous, um, and there should be at least there should be at least. And I appreciate this um, this uh, professor contributing to the Wall Street Journal. There should be at least sort of an articulate. Uh, thought counter to that out there and, and a reasonable discussion about it. So, um, and I mean, I think that's, that's what I'll say about that. Um, so kind of a hot issue I know that's going on right now. Um, don't pretend to have all the answers, but, uh, you know, we have to think about, uh, you know, sort of what's been the motivating, um, contributors behind sort of the, the sentiment out there. And, and how we can support our allies and, and that sort of thing. Hey, you know what? I'm going to shift now into science and some good news. I don't want to always talk about on podcasts. And I kind of feel like this happens a lot with current events podcasts. I mean, one, everything is sort of sensationalized. Um, and number two, um, a lot of it's sort of presented through the lens of negativity or anxiety or stress. Um, and and the truth is, there's we're, we're making a lot of good progress as well in this world. And so um, I think as I come across content that I think um, is important to, uh, to to be informed about, I'll present that as well. So, for example, in the environment, the environment is one of those hot bushing issues, right? Climate control, everything of that, or climate change, I should say. And, you know, there's definitely extremes, like from denying, right, um, which may be kind of the far right to sort of your left extreme. Uh, which is, you know, the world's going to end in, in two years. And, and so what, what's the middle ground there? The middle ground is um, there's probably been progress made to, to sort of um, circumvent some of the damage that we have done. And we have, we have contributed uh, uh, to, the, to, the state of, to the state of the climate, um, whether we're going to be able to, you know, slow that down or, um, it does facilitation lead to, you know, more extreme consequences more quickly. I think that's the, all what we're trying to figure out all of us in this process, but there's a lot of bright people working to sort of resolve some of these things. So, uh, for example, um, the carbon credit market, uh, which is the concept is you get credit for taking carbon out of the market. And there was an interesting article again in the wall street journal that came out and said, um, Carbon credits helps Brazil regrow the rainforest. As more companies offset emissions, many are funding projects to reverse rainforest destruction. And I think this is a this is a great win for carbon credits and sort of economic models. Uh, companies now are using carbon credits for the slower and more sustainable regrowing of native landscapes. Um, 
Brazil could theoretically capture up to 746 million metrics of tons of carbon equivalent by a year by growing cleared forest. No other country comes close. Uh, in June, Britain's AstraZeneca said it was investing $400 million in forest restorations in Brazil, India, Vietnam, Ghana, and Rwanda as part of a strategy to reach net zero emissions by planting 200 million native trees by 2030. Okay, so um, the carbon market and these credits, they let us think about restoration on a much larger scale where we can make a difference. And I uh, and I, I, I think the main, one of the main, um, I guess, takeaways on this topic is, and why is this happening is there's an economic kind of a motivator with getting these credits, right? And as much as we want to uh, be able to resolve things through altruistic sort of incentives, uh, the truth of the matter is that uh, they're not often successful uh, because, um, you know, we have needs, we have bills to pay. And so um, companies, same thing. If they're not profitable, then uh, then they are, uh, generally speaking, not motivated, right? Okay. So I think that was a positive development um, as far as the climate goes. Another positive development came out of the New York Times, an article that I read this week. It said, over the past decade, the cost of wind energy declined by 70% and solar has declined by 90%. Renewables now make up 80% of the new new electric electricity generation cap capacity. As a result, U.S. green gas emissions have fallen, even as our GDP and population have grown. Look, I'm not saying we're done with the effort. I don't want people to sort of uh, you know, be in this, listening to this pod and kind of make those assumptions that, you know, I'm saying, oh gosh, you know, you know, we don't, we don't need to put more in this. I'm just saying that we need to, we need to communicate the good news too, right? And the positive developments, not everything. And that's an encouraging thing, right? Um, and it encourages people to go in these fields. It, it gives us hope. It, it makes, it makes us make more investments in the technology, knowing that there's economic viability, right? And application, uh, you know, as opposed to, Gosh, you know, like uh, it's it's kind of a doomsday scenario, and and frankly, we have a lot of people to thank for this. I mean, you know, the work of thousands of scientists, engineers, policymakers. This is what this is what has made this happen, and the innovation that's there is incredible. Uh, another article that I just came across, or I was uh, in, in conjunction with this, was a company, and I, the name sort of escapes me, but they are basically taking um, biomass or trees that have um, that are dead essentially in forest and before they begin to rot because those trees will uh, will hold carbon and then release in the atmosphere they're taking them and putting them in the bottom of the ocean <laughs> and they're by virtue of doing the, that uh, they're able to sort of limit carbon output in, into the into our environment I mean you know it's ingenious things like this that are transpiring all right I'm going to close this shade behind me because I'm I'm getting a glare here and I know everybody wants to See exactly who they're talking to. So just one second here. Okay. Going back here. Maybe that's a little bit better. Maybe that's a little bit better. Okay. Yeah. Look, I'm not about um, the right backdrop or perfect lighting. Hey, that's not why I'm doing this. Uh, I, you know, I'm doing this for the reasons I stated before. And um, so, you know, professional level of quality or uh, even 
I, I may not even shower or shave a particular day that I present, but I, I do plan to be prepared and form like I, I, the commitment I made to you um, in our first episode. All right. So why don't we shift a little bit to the economy, what's going out there, on out there. You know, everybody's got a... Um, you know, everybody's going to have a different perspective because you're operating from the standpoint of how you feel about it. But I think there's a, it's always these little articles that go unnoticed that I think are worth mentioning. And uh, I want to talk about some of the things that I think in the economy that are sort of, um, I guess, a, I don't want to say uh, uh, part encouraging, but also maybe conflicting. Um, and so I'm going to pull up this uh, one article I wanted to be prepared for. Okay. So, uh, one thing I think is interesting, like we look at the stock market and we're, uh, by and large, we're encouraged and there's all these professional service industries that encourage us to invest in the stock market. I, of course, hold stocks and bonds and uh, other investments. And, um, you know, generally speaking, I'm a, I'm a believer, uh, but, I, but I also think there's an element of it that's... <laughs> Uh, I wonder um, who are the who are the ultimate beneficiaries, um, and I think there's a lot of garbage out there. And this was evidenced by uh, in the Nasdaq how many stocks have fallen below a dollar as of Friday of last week. 557 stocks listed on a U.S. exchange were trading below a dollar, up from fewer than a dozen in the early two, 2021. Okay, so we're talking a dozen, and now we're at 557 of the stock, you know, stocks listed on the Nasdaq. Um, that's pretty incre that's pretty incredible because typically when anything is less than a dollar, it should be sold on over the counter to the market. Um, penny stocks are related, so um, that it, that implies there's been a lot of value destruction, if you will. And I imagine most of those are small bi uh, businesses or maybe even companies that are propped up. You know, uh, that should have never been worth what they were, were in the first place. This sort of dovetails or pick, picks up off something I was talking about last week, which is, you know, the idea of unicorns and how many of those came about uh, just in the last four or five years. Uh, you know, how half the unicorns of the 640 or whatever out there happened since 2021. So there's this sort of mass proliferation and there's SPACs and all these vehicles. And, and the reality is most of them are just sort of... Um, you know, they're, I don't want to say they're unethical, but they don't really create, they don't really end up creating the value that, uh, that they're suggesting they're going to create, right? And so um, to me, it's not a reason not to invest in stocks, but it, it also may be a reflection of what's happening in the economy. These companies, these smaller companies can't hold their value. But let's look at some other data that might have, um, you know, that might, uh, some data points to consider that might suggest uh, things, you know, we've achieved a uh, softer landing. Uh, the economy, the growth was revised up, right, to 5.2% annual rate. Uh, that's um, that. That's the fastest growth for gro gross domestic products since the fourth quarter of 2021 when the country was lifting COVID restrictions. And that was up from 4.9% estimate. Consumer spending for last quarter rose 3.6% compared with the previous estimate of 4%. So, um you know, it still doesn't mean, you know, we may not expand still beyond two or 3%, but it does sort of imply that we are sort of gaining our footing a little bit. However, um, sort of, I guess, data that may suggest 
for us to be a little bit more careful as we go forward, if you look at job openings this past October, it slid to 8.7 million. The number doesn't, these numbers never mean that much to me, except if they're sort of um, considered on a relative basis. So uh, that was a decline of 617,000 or 6.6%. This was the lowest toll in two and a half years. Uh, since March 2021. So um, I think that that could indicate that uh, that the slowdown is here if there are going to be less job openings. Uh, the biggest sector declines were education uh, and health services, 238,000 financial activities, leisure and hospitality. Uh, so uh, as far as job openings go, um, things are slowing down. The the one sort of concerning data point about this, and again, I don't know why this isn't in the mainstream more and discussed in the mainstream more. There didn't seem to be, there is an indication of government jobs being reduced. In fact, there's the opposite. Remember I said in the last jobs growth report um, of the 700 th or whatever thousand jobs added, actually, I'm sorry, of the 250,000 added, like uh, 50,000 of them were, scratch that. Sorry, now I'm remembering it was 150,000 added. 50,000 were government jobs. Okay, so this is the thing I struggle with. This is why I'm I'm kind of a middle person, right? Uh, uh, at times, our sort of economic and fiscal policies, when we're paying down debt, our interest rates are up, so the debt costs more to service, yet we're still adding government jobs. We're still increasing our spending, uh, of which is already you know, the government accounts for already almost a quarter of the GDP in terms of higher. So we, we need to, we need to think like a business, more as a business, a government and that and a business at times, that means we got to make the hard cut. So I thought that that jobs opening thing was interesting because there really weren't reductions in government related jobs. Um, okay. So I think uh, housing is another data point. Everybody gets all spun up about, um, Prices were up in September, believe it or not. So I don't know what we're experiencing locally. I think that, that may be on average prices up. I guess there, there's these two competing balancing aspects, right? Um, limited supply keeps prices up because people don't want to sell when they already have a locked in lower interest rate. Um, however, some people are going to have to go out and sell. So, uh, you know, there may be being, uh, there might be more price pressure down. Um, there's many economists that think if there wasn't this unusual supply constraint, prices would be a lot lower. And I happen to be one of those people that agree with that. So uh, right or wrong, I, I think there's sort of a middle ground there that uh, maybe, you know, maybe we'll see some price reduction and that will, it, that will increase the supply to sort of Nora, uh, more normal levels because uh, it's essentially at historical lows. Uh, okay. So what's happening globally, economy wise? Um, I think the only thing I'll point out here, again, I'm not someone that spends an um, inadequate amount of time uh, balancing global economic indicators, but uh, I, as something, as things come up from time to time, I think they're worth pointing out. I'll, I'll, I'll bring them into this podcast. And one of those is foreign investments. Um, and I think when you look at foreign investments in, in our currency or in our debt. I mean, that's one thing that uh, time to time makes sense to look at, but it's also what's happening sort of globally. And there's a, there's a really good article again in the Wall Street Journal that talked about China and our investments in China and foreign investments, how dramatically down they are over the last uh, 
couple of quarters. Um, and uh, there's been a big exodus of money from China's stock market since August. International investors have pulled equivalent of more than 24 billion from China A shares, which are listed in Shanghai and Shenzhen. Um, and so this is the largest and mo most sustained net outflow of foreign funds through the through since this link was established in 2014. Okay, so you know uh, exposure there, uh, big trading partner. We know we have um, uh, there, you know, the, the the kind of intensity of of some of the disagreements have sort of escalated in the last uh, year or two. Probably not uh, not not supported by the fact that Ukraine and Russia are at war, and Putin still has um, strong ties with with China, and and they're filling some of the void with respect to oil and all the other things that have. Um, uh, been penalized or there have been sanctions against in the open market. So, but having said that, I think you're, you're seeing it have a sort of an effect of saving money on one end, but at the expense of foreign investment and interest. So, and that could be, that could hurt, that could hurt China down the road. And maybe it's an incentive for them to change some of their policies. All right. Um, we're now at the time of the podcast where I get to make my weekly dig at the all in podcast. So in some ways this is a dig and it's a promotion, right? I'm not sure if uh, anybody here listening to this today or at another time is familiar with the all in podcast, but um, I enjoy it. And I've, I've made mention of it before. It's, it's highly regarded and followed. Um, I think generally speaking, um, they do a good job inviting discourse um, and, and dialogue, but uh, it's not without its biases. And the the host of that show um they all sort of come from the same type of a bubble um and look man some of them found great success uh without ever coming from a place of uh, of a lot of success uh, prior to that so they they're, they're to be commended uh but having said that i think they also um pursue a narrative um that is uh in their own interest Right, so be it the Silicon Valley Valley Bank uh, demise, or you know their political dispositions, uh, you know they're very good at using facts and information to, um, and you know dialogue with guests to sort of um, uh, get to a place where their views are supported over, I would say the more middle or or commonsensical view, if if I can uh, uh, look at it through that lens. So. Uh, just this past week, my weekly dig is they had a guest on um, uh, that we've all probably heard his name before. He used to be a, a commentator on Fox News, uh, Tucker Carl Carlson. Actually, the interview overall, uh, I think it was great um, and it's definitely worth listening to. Uh, but again, I mean, for me, there's there's these inflection points in his interviews where the moderator the facilitators that you sort of lose credibility, right? And that usually comes when your biases are um, exposed, subtly or not subtly. And in this case, Tucker went on to talk about how, uh, which I think was right, he talked about how, you know, figures that are looking to be autocratic or polarizing or is not what the government needs right now. And um, we need sort of... Um, representation that's going to seek to sort of unify the country. And I'm almost, I'm like shocked listening to this. 
Uh, but then there was sort of a follow-up question from one of the podcast facilitators that uh, said, well, you know, which candidates are sort of, you know, are you fearful that will be destructive? And, there, and, there, and there, from that sort of ensued maybe about a, honestly, probably was 15 to 20 minute bashing of uh, government, Governor Newsom out of California. Um, and that, you know, he was sort of in this debate with DeSantis, uh, which occurred last week. He was positioning him, himself as a candidate in the event Biden drops out, which may or may not be true. Who knows? But beyond that, they really there was a lot of um, direct attacks sort of on his character and, and by Tucker. And I thought I uh, and I didn't I'm not saying that those are right or wrong, actually. Maybe maybe they're warranted. But where where the credibility falls off in these scenarios for me is that was there was very little of that directed at former President Trump, which frankly has a much more egregious record of, um, you know, uh, of, of, of destruction than Governor Newsom has had a chance to even implement, whether he gets to the place where he implements or not. So, you know, everything from January 6th to, um, you know, his, all his other sort of direct attacks on uh, people that, quote unquote, he doesn't consider loyal to him. I don't even, I mean, I didn't even go into it, right? I mean, he's now, I don't know how many indictments there are out there, like 90 or whatever. There's like, you know, four you know major cases going on, and so, and Tucker Carlson, and, and as well as the All In podcast, didn't seem to think that was germane to that aspect of the dialogue. So you have all this other great information that you're providing, and um, you know, reading between the lines, that's where you you lose credibility. In fact, you lose audience, right? You lose the independence. Um, which I'm going to keep arguing is the growing majority in this in this country. It's not yet, but I think over time, uh, you know, if we look at this podcast in 10 years from now, and we, we, you know, in fact, I'll try to pull up this data next week. Like, how many people are registered independent in the United States, um, and where those trends have been? Uh, so let me, I'll make a note to do that and present that next week. And I bet you, if we look at that 10 years from now, and we do our jobs and we listen and we think to what all the other sides are saying, I think this is going to be the segment that's going to grow and it's going to be really exciting for our country. And maybe that's how we salvage um, where we're at today. But that's my weekly dig on the All In podcast. Um, so uh, sort of continuing down that view of uh, political, and we'll, we'll be wrapping this up here momentarily. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're following at all, what's going on, the Republican nomination, um, obviously we all know that Trump is in the lead, which, um, I've already made my feelings known about that, but there is a little bit of a rising star happening with Nikki Haley. Um, you know, she now in New Hampshire, an early primary state, um, a recent article had her pulling at 20% to DeSantis, 9%. Big money donors are increasingly lining up behind Haley as the GOP's best bet to beat Trump. Uh, which I think, uh, which is amazing. She may have a narrow path to nomination at this point, but, um, you know, uh, I think some of these pragmatic, you know, swing state polls show uh, Haley is that sort of Reagan style um, conservative uh, that might be far more electable, electable in a general election than Trump. So, you know, it's not over till it's over. And um, I don't know if she's the right, uh, candidate to support or not. I know the Koch brothers got behind her this past week. So, um, you know, she's, she's winning the support of, I guess, some influential people and, um, who knows where that sort of ends up falling or, uh, moving towards. I mean, 
in my book, I I think the Republicans would have a great chance. And me as an independent, I might be even um, consider sort of placing my you know my meager vote towards that party if it's anybody but Trump. In fact, I'm hoping someone comes out with a shirt that says anybody but Trump. Uh, because I, there, there are probably a lot of well-reasoned people that could uh, represent that party, and I, and I think the same of, of the Democratic Party. I, I'm definitely one of those people that falls sort of in the middle here and thinks either candidate will be uh, so, uh, put forward to us is probably not going to be the best if it's a if it's a Biden um, and Trump ticket. Let's say. Um, on that note, kind of closing on the Trump ticket, um, I don't think his problems are getting any better. Uh, and so, you know, there's just a lot of noise out there. And right away, if something said sort of that degrades him a little bit, you know, he comes out and attack it, attacks it on his platform, whatever bogus social media platform that is. And um, again, I don't think his supporters are even listening to what's happening or transpiring. But, um, I, you know, last week I talked about uh, Marianne Barry Trump and sort of his, her relationship with Donald Trump and all these years that she was a uh, he confided in her and then really in the last several years uh, you know they became disenfranchised and you know what happened with the credibility of that relationship and sort of the animosity and you know some of her thoughts towards her her brother which she obviously knows pretty well and I thought that was a good an interesting data point that you know maybe worth sort of considering. Uh, just this week, ABC News reported that Trump attorney Jennifer Little told a grand jury, quote unquote, that she very clearly, unquote, warned the ex-president that he must comply with federal subpoena for classified documents he took home from the White House. And she's, quote unquote, absolutely certain that he understood the failure to do so would be, quote unquote, a crime. Okay. Um, so here's her own attorney suggesting that, and she was unequivocal about it. And, you know, whatever the defense may be, if your own attorneys are advising you to do this stuff and you're not um, responding to it, I can't see how that's a good thing, right? <laughs> so, look, I mean, I I, I do want to end this uh, today um, and do so um, by not, you know, making you feel I, I'm, I'm going to be bashing one side or the other uh, every week on this. I'm just taking pieces of the news and letting us sort of assimilate opinions. If my hope is realized and we get to the point where, you know, independence can be a bigger party to sort of motivate change and maybe even promote different candidates that are sort of, uh, whether they meet in the middle or just represent our country in a more sort of ethical, professional way, however we want to look at it, then, then, then the goal is met. Um, and uh, I think this would be true if we were seeing the same sort of behavior uh, on the Democratic side and, you know, uh, had, had, had any of this transpired during Biden's presidency leading up to what will be, I guess, his re, um, uh, purported reelection, uh, if he indeed is the candidate. So, you know, uh, I'm going to uh, remain open to that sort of dialogue as we sort of um, continue this. All right. I hope that helped today. Uh, I'm enjoying this. Uh, I promise I'll get better. I'll keep investing time, trying to create a structure where I can do this in, you know, under 45 minutes each week. Um, I'm open to anybody contacting me with topics or uh, different presenters or co-presenters uh, potentially to have on the show because I'd love to do that. Uh, in fact, I hope to have my first guest here in the not too distant future, probably someone not 
uh, uh, famous or that we've all heard of, but more like you and me, someone that's been out there and is raising the family, working, raising kids, trying to see our country land in a better place. And um, hopefully uh, whose opinions or, or views on the world can kind of uh, be more sort of consistent with uh, the whole or, or suggest that it's time that we all uh, start making changes in certain areas. So um, thank you for listening today. And uh, until then, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to talking with you again next week.